Morning, church. How are you? So we have a uh, our series that the series that we're in right now is um, called "Naked and Unafraid," right? And it was all about the um, all about the ways in which shame, the emotion of shame, and the um, the tool of shame. A, we believe that shame is a tool that the enemy uses to leverage us or to wedge us out of close relationship with God. Um, the ways in which God ad- addresses shame in our lives and what shame looks like in our lives. And so last week we talked out of the, uh, the Genesis account, um, but this week we're going we're gonna to talk about how, how Jesus encountered or when Jesus encountered one instance when Jesus encountered shame and how he addressed it. I want to look at just a few, maybe a few reminders from last week so that we um, were maybe brought back up to the same page or to the same place. And understanding what shame, what shame is. You know, there's many, many like, um, you, you know, you maybe open a psychology textbook or something like that, or you... You, um, you Google definition of shame, and there may be very therapeutic or technical definitions here. And, um, I believe that there, is a, that there is a deep component of shame that is almost strictly a tool of the enemy that he uses, again, I said, to, to leverage us or to separate us um, from close relationship with God. This is what we see happen in the Genesis account, right? Where Adam and Eve... Adam and Eve sinned, that the enemy, that the enemy used his crafty, insidious nature right, to, um, to convince them both that, that, that God wanted separation from them and that they should pursue radical independence from, from their Creator. Right? And that decision and the consequences that came from that decision made them run and hide from God. So we have shame is a tool of the enemy that is used to separate us from cr- close relationship with God. That was the main point from last week. Second, second point here is that shame is a covert tool, meaning it, it runs under the surface of our, of our consciousness, right? It happens in a subconscious way. Shame is a covert tool that replaces our God-given identity as sons and daughters of God and supplants it or, um, or implants a false identity upon us. That we are, now, we are now exiles from God. We are now strangers from God. We are living in shame because of what we have done. And so because of what we have done, we take on a new identity. Now this is who, not just what we've done, but now this is who we are. And because of who we are, we must run from God. Which brings us to our third point. When we allow this false identity to take root in who we are, meaning that we begin to believe it, right? We begin to, we begin to live as though it is truth. Then we, it is impossible for us, or not impossible, but it is very, very difficult for us to find any other option other than to run and hide. After all, um, that is what our false identity tells us that we must do. We have we have sinned. We are not just we 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 haven't just sinned, right? We we are now um, we are now uh, a an enemy of God. We must run and hide from God, right? <laughs> Even if God comes to pursue us, right? We go and hide in the bushes, and he comes to find us in the cool of the day. We can read ourselves into um, the story of Adam and Eve and what had happened to them and what they experienced and what their response was to their own sense of shame. But even in, even in the midst of what this false identity tells us that we must do, which is run and hide from God, and we must run and hide from God because he doesn't want anything to do with us, and he's angry with us, that... That what we learned last week is that God, God, God does not, 
God does not allow us to run and hide from him. In fact, God comes in the midst of our shame, comes in the midst of our hiding, and pursues us, and immediately goes to work covering up our shame so that you and I can be released back into close relationship with him. That God, God did not abide with the decision of Adam and Eve to hide themselves. He did not abide by the reality of their own nakedness, what was bringing them shame, right? That they were sitting in their shame and they were hiding from God because of it. But God pursued them even in their hiding and made provision immediately by covering over their nakedness with, it says, animal skin, right? And we talked about how how that how how that is a how that foreshadowed even the work of God in the gospel of Jesus Christ that that God even from the very beginning of sin was making provision to provision to cover our sin and to cover our shame um, our shame by way of sacrifice the sacrifice of Jesus The question I, I got a few questions about this um, this uh, throughout this week. So I, I, it's great when I get questions about stuff like this that are come from multiple people because it means I I now know I was not clear. <laughs> so um, so I want to I want to maybe try and bring a little bit of clarification to some things. Okay. Um, the the question some of the questions ran kind of like this this little pathway is well what is the difference between shame and guilt. Like, how do I, what is the difference between shame and guilt? Because shame we're communicating as something deeply insidious that the enemy is using in order to create a great gulf or separation between us and our creator, right? Wants to convince us that God wants nothing to do with us. And so, and so we need to run and hide from God and run the other direction when we know that the truth of God's word says that God consistently pursues us, right? And we see evidence of that all throughout the course of Scripture, that God is pursuing and pursuing and pursuing and pursuing and pursuing and pursuing, right? So but then, then what is the difference between, okay, I am guilty and I feel shame? So guilt is a... Um, to put it really simply, guilt is a legal term, right? Even when we see it in Scripture, right? It is. It has a. It has the undercurrent of like law, and not like law as in Old Testament law, but like um, you were driving down Newland at sixty miles an hour, right? And you got pulled over, right? It is not. There is no gray area as to whether or not you have broken the law. You are guilty of having broken an established law. There's no. It's not like a well. Maybe I should feel shame and like maybe I shouldn't or maybe I'm guilty or like maybe I'm not. No, like you're like you did it, right? You did it. Guilt is a legal term. Legal term, it describes, it describes our legal status. When I steal something, I am guilty of theft, period. Right? There's not, not any interpretive value towards, towards my status. Right? I'm guilty of that thing. Shame, in comparison, is much more sinister. Okay? Shame is the way that the enemy makes you feel about the things that you have done, right? And it's the ways in which he twists now your identity to feel as though you are now a different person in the sight of God because of what you've done. You are dirty. You are horrible. You didn't just steal something. You are a thief and you should run and hide from God because God hates thieves. So there's the there's the status, the legal status, I am guilty of theft, right? Which is guilt. And then there is shame, 
which takes your status and tries to rewrite your identity, convincing you that you are something other than who God says that you are. Now there's this third dimension in there. There's guilt, right? There's shame, right? But there's this third dimension, this word or this premise that we see in Scripture. We also talk about this a lot, which is the word conviction. Well, okay, well, I'm guilty of something, right? X. Um, Shame is the way that the enemy, or the thing that the enemy uses to change how I feel in relationship to God. But like, well, then what is conviction? Okay, so shame is a tool of the enemy. Listen, conviction is a tool of the Holy Spirit. Okay? The enemy uses shame. The Holy Spirit uses conviction. I'm convicted about something. I don't really want to be convicted about that. Actually, you do want to be convicted about that. Because that means you have the presence of the Holy Spirit in your life who is actively drawing you back into relationship with Jesus Christ through repentance. Conviction is a great thing. We want conviction. Because conviction brings repentance. Shame makes you run from God. My identity has been changed. I must now run and hide. Hide in the bushes, right? Adam and Eve style. Run from God. Conviction does the other thing. Conviction doesn't make you run from God. Conviction makes you run to God in a spirit of humility and repentance. Shame leaves you in a state of judgment. Conviction, which the Bible also uses a term like It uses kind of the terms interchangeably, conviction and godly sorrow. That would be a great, like, very short description or definition of conviction. Godly sorrow. Conviction or godly sorrow, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10, brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. So that when we are feeling, we are feeling convicted when we, when we know that the only place for us to go to deal with what we're feeling and what we have done is to run to God. Now, as you can imagine, the enemy always wants to replace conviction with shame. He always wants us to feel shame. The Holy Spirit's always fighting for us to feel conviction. Right? And so this is where it becomes so maybe like sometimes confusing, even in our own hearts or in our own souls, to determine what is it that we're experiencing or what, what are we operating underneath? Are we operating underneath, right? The identity as one who has the Holy Spirit of God. I am a son of God. I am a daughter of God. He has adopted me into his family by faith in Jesus Christ. He has given me his spirit as a mark or a seal on me, as a deposit that promises the the future reality of my inheritance in him, right? And so now, because I am a son, because I am a daughter, because I have the identity as one who has been marked by the Holy Spirit, every single thing that I feel does not, I do not have to bow to the whim or to the identity that the enemy is trying to foist upon me in shame, I can walk humbly, but also boldly and confidently in a spirit of conviction and godly sorrow, knowing that at every single turn, I am walking to God. I am walking to God. I'm not running away from Him. I'm not hiding from Him, right? I don't need to, like, I, I'm, not, I'm not hiding in fear because of what's coming to me. I already know what's coming towards me. We're going to see that um, in our, uh, our gospel lesson from this morning. Now, I know because um, because I see it all the time. 
but also because I've experienced it as well. Um, I know that you may have, or you may be currently, living under the weight of shame for a long, long time. Likely, likely feeling, right? I am too broken. I am too sinful. I am, I am too far to ever return. You may even be in a place where you feel um, not just not just like not just like in the past that you've gone too far away from God to return, but you might feel like currently, right? Like I am so stuck in the place of sin that I am that I can't get out, right? Like my wheels just spin in the ruts of the life that my sin has created. I'm not just plagued by the things that I've done in my past. I am plagued by the things that I am doing in my present. I am plagued by the place where I am now. And you feel bound by them. You feel in chains by them. You feel unable to separate yourself from them because now it's just, well, I mean, I've just resigned myself to say, this is who I am. This is just who I am. And I want you to hear me very closely, very carefully, right? If you feel so stuck and bound in a pattern or in a, in a rut of sin that you have resigned yourself to say, this is just who I am. That is shame talking. That is the, that is the voice of the enemy. That is the, that is the pressure of the enemy convincing you, trying to convince you that you are beyond hope, beyond help, beyond the reach of God's transforming love, beyond the, the ability to walk in humble conviction, beyond, beyond restoration, beyond repentance. Because what, what you're saying up here in your mind, what that identity has has the narrative that that shame identity has like is turning over in your head and turning over in your head is this because you know all about grace right you could tell people about grace you could talk about it you might even be able to point out some bible verses about about the role of grace but what but the narrative that's running in your head is that grace applies to good people God's grace, God, God's grace applies to those, to those really mature church people. God, God only pursues and loves people that does, that does the right things. Like, He's not pursuing me. I'm like way far away from Him. Like, He's like, He, he stopped pursuing me a long, long time ago, right? You know that your very presence in this room right now, hearing this word in this moment, is evidence that God is pursuing you by His Holy Spirit. There is nothing more that the enemy wants to do than to make it easy for you to continue to believe those lies for the rest of your life. Nothing more that he wants to do. My goal is to is to like just firmly say out in the open the so that so that the en, so that the enemy can hear it right. The enemy doesn't have the power to read our thoughts right because we are in the spirit of God like the spirit of God controls my life. The enemy can't read my thoughts, but the enemy can hear my words right. And and what I want the enemy to hear this morning, and I want what I want you to hear this morning is this, is that we're not going to let those lies, we're not going to let those lies rest um, unaffected by the truth. Unopposed by the truth. Because the, the only way to destroy the lie is to overwhelm it with the truth. 
It's the only way to destroy lies, is to overwhelm them with the truth. And the truth is um, that you've been running from God, but He has not been standing still. He is, he is running after you. And I'm praying now, and we will pray now, that in these next, these next few moments, I'm, I'm honestly praying that those of you who have been running and 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 running, and running, and running, and running in your shame and, and hiding and hiding and hiding and hiding would experience now, even in these next few moments, a soul exhaustion so significant that you stop just long enough for Him to catch you. (laughs) For the Lord to finally catch up to you and cover over and cover up all the shame that has sent you running and hiding all of your life. Heavenly Father, I pray that over these people and in this place and in this room, that you would let no lie go unopposed by your truth. That any lie that the enemy seeks to speak, that any, that, that any tool of shame that the enemy seeks to use, that any fear that the enemy wants to um, just press down hard on us and make us run in fear. Lord, in the name of Jesus, I pray that you would silence, that you would cut out the tongue of the enemy this morning, that he may have nothing to say. And then only your truth, Lord, may be in our hearts, may be in our minds, may be in our spirits. In Jesus' name, amen. Here, here's, a, here's a reality that we're going we're gonna to see and explore in Scripture a little bit. Far from God not wanting anything to do with you, that's what we usually feel when we're in shame. God doesn't want anything to do with me. Right, Far apart from God not wanting anything to do with you, Jesus actually made a habit. And not just a habit, but it, but it was his... I, I would go so far as to say that it was his fundamental lifestyle to be around those that the world thought were less than. That it wasn't just like something that Jesus did occasionally. Like he would spend most of his time with the really like faithful religious people. And then if he had a little bit of time at the end of his day, or he saw one at the coffee shop, right, on his way home, he would sit down and have a, a grace-filled conversation with them, right? It was, not, it was not just a habit that Jesus had. It was, a, it was the life that he lived that he spent his time with those who the rest of the world saw as less than or on the outskirts. And this is exactly how we feel when we live in consistent shame. We feel that we are less. We're less than the faithful people over here. We're less than our ideal selves. We're less than them. We're less than this. We're less than that. Everyone and everything. We are, everyone else and everything else is up here. We are down here. We are not enough. We are a failure. God doesn't want anything to do with us. We must hide from Him and every hint of vulnerability in relationship that He presents to us. Jesus was really, really, really well acquainted with those feelings. They were not foreign to him. They were not something that he was, he was com- that were completely separate from him. He was, for instance, here's just some things. Like, listen to this. First of all, he was born in Nazareth. Now, <laughs> I tried to be like, okay. What would be the common day Nazareth? 
yeah. And I, I didn't want to actually come up with any examples because I knew then there'd be someone people like, well, that's where I live, right? Or that's where I grew up, or that's where I'm from, you know? Like, like nothing good comes from there, right? So I, I don't know, like, if you, if you have that place in your mind where you're like, oh, geez. The, when I was growing up, the place that nothing good came from was this little town over here, right? The place that nothing good came from was this little town over here, right? That there ain't nothing good about it. Everyone knows it, right? It's a dusty, dirty, no one, no one ever came out of there and made anything of their lives, right? It's just kind of the place that time and God forgot, this was Nazareth. It was like Jesus' hometown. So imagine that place in your mind. Imagine, imagine that little town that you're thinking of in your mind. And that's where Jesus came from. That was part of his identity. In fact, we have read in the Gospels, like, isn't that, isn't that Joseph's son, the son of the carpenter? Wasn't he, isn't he from Nazareth? We all know nothing good has ever come from there. Nothing good has ever come from Randolph. <laughs> Except my wife. <laughs> right? <laughs> Only good thing that's come from Randolph, my wife, right there. Mm -hmm. Nothing good's ever come from Randolph. Jesus was born, right? So he's from Nazareth. Not ideal. He was born to an unwed woman in a society um, that was, um, I will say, a lot less forgiving than ours, but like there was, there was not really a concept for unwed pregnancy in the ancient Near East. There still kind of isn't in the, in the uh, Middle East. Right? They still kind of maintained that functionality of honor and shame culture. Right? But it was scandalous. Absolutely scandalous. It would have been akin to being to someone be like, hey, do you you, you do know you do know the family that Jesus came from, right? Like you, you do know, right? I mean I, I saw you talking to him over there, you were eating with him, you let him touch you. I just I wasn't sure if you knew like kind of what family he came from. Just wanted to let you know, okay? This would, this, this would have been the conversation. I know it's funny, right? But not funny, because we also have conversations like that about people that we know. You know who his parents are, right? Do you know who his siblings are? I do. Let me tell you all about them. Right? So there's this, there's this sense that his identity was bound up in his family. Right? Do you know who his family is? His birth, even. His birth was announced by the migrant worker of their day. The shepherds. And not only was his birth announced, they were the first ones to proclaim um, from a human perspective. You know, the angels were there proclaiming the birth of Jesus already. But they were the first ones to go and tell other people. They were the first proclaimers of the coming of the king. The migrant workers of the day. The lowliest of lows came and went to announce the highest of the highs. Listen, the weird guy who ate bugs, lived in the desert, and wore camel hair was Jesus' marketing agent. <laughs> right? If you're going <laughs> to choose someone... Right to be your marketing agent to go ahead of you and be like, hey, um, got this guy I know. Uh, he's gonna come. He's gonna gonna talk about some things, right? Uh, gonna and you're gonna kind of pitch the deal that he's bringing alongside. You, you probably should choose someone other than John the Baptist, right? Who is this weird ascetic who ate bugs, lived in the desert, and wore garments of camel hair? Now, have you ever touched camel hair? Anyone here ever touched a camel? It's not like alpaca fur, right? No, it feels like steel wool, right? 
It's, it's not the comfy stuff. All the really godly and religious people of Jesus' day, godly, religious people of Jesus' day, hated him. In fact, they were on the they were on the leading edge of getting him executed. Like, what can we do to get this guy out of here? Finally, and probably most most poignantly, Jesus was executed in the most dishonorable fashion that the world at that time knew. It wasn't holy or revered like sometimes our minds have made that three wooden crosses on the right side of the highway type of song like leads it to believe. It was the purpose of crucifixion was not just to kill the person's body, it was to kill their soul from an emotional standpoint. Everything about it was, was, was purpose-built to make you not just dead, but to make you feel bad while you were dying. You were stripped naked. You were not way up high, right? You were placed at just the right level. So all of the most intimate parts of you were at eye level and face level to everyone that was walking down the street. It wasn't way up on a hill separated far from where all the rest of the people were in the city. They lined the streets, the Roman roads, they lined the Roman roads with the crosses so that you could not walk anywhere in the city without walking in between those who were being executed on a cross naked. It wasn't just meant to kill your body. It was meant to take every last bit of your dignity away in the midst of them killing you so that everyone knew you don't mess with the Romans. Jesus is well, well, well acquainted with those who have experienced shame, with those who have experienced embarrassment, with those who have lived under the weight of their whole entire life. However lowly that you think you are, however far away from holy or faithful or obedient or religious you think that you are, I have got fantastic news for you this morning. If you look to your right, you're going to find Jesus there in that place where you are. If you look to your left, you're going to find Jesus there too. If, you're, uh, if you look behind you, he's, he's right behind you as well. In front of you, he's already been there. You know where Jesus is the most comfortable? Right where you are. Jesus is comfortable right where you are. In the exact spot that you are at, Jesus is like, oh, this is like the best fitting pair of jeans ever. I feel comfortable here. This is where I was meant to be. This is where I want to live. Jesus is most comfortable in the place that you're at, even if you think that that place that you're at is the place that you never should have been before. That's where Jesus is with you. There's this one incredible story in um, Luke's Gospel, not Pastor Luke, who happens to be on vacation. If you're wondering where Luke is this morning, he's on vacation. He's flying back from Florida today. We will not be uh, encouraging him because Florida sounds nice right now. (laughs) They had a nice little vacation down in Florida. Uh, But in Luke's Gospel, chapter 8, uh, sometimes this story gets missed um, because it gets kind of like tucked. In, it's, it's tucked in between another story. It's like they start another story and this story happens within a story. So Luke chapter 8, verse 40 through 48. Let's read it. Now when Jesus returned 
a crowd welcomed him, for they were all expecting him. Uh, Then a man named Jairus, a ruler of the synagogue, came and fell at Jesus' feet, pleading with him to come to his house because his only daughter, a girl of about 12, was dying. So that's the story, right? Jesus on the way to Jairus' house to heal his daughter. Then we get the story that happens inside of the story. As Jesus was on his way, the crowds almost crushed him. And a woman who was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years, but no one could heal her, she, she came up behind him and she touched the edge of his cloak. And immediately her bleeding stopped. Who touched me? Jesus asked. When they all denied it, Peter said, Master, the people are crowding and pressing all against you. But Jesus said, Someone has touched me. I I know that power has gone out from me. Then the woman, seeing that she could not go unnoticed, came trembling and fell at his feet. In the presence of all of the people, she told why she had touched him and how she had been instantly healed. And then he said to her daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. And then the rest of the story continues about Jairus' daughter. Right? So sometimes this story gets missed because it's like sandwiched in between another story. But this is a significant story. This is a, this is a significant experience. Uh, so to, to kind of rehash the story a little bit, right? There are, Jesus almost always had enormous crowds of people following him. And it was often, um, it was, it was often that he would like, he would have to actually escape the, the, the crowds, right? He would have to go out on a boat, right? He would have to go up on the mountain to pray. He would have to go, like, he, he was, he always was trying to find some space. It, it gives you a sense of how how um, like consuming these crowds were. So much so, it says they almost crushed him. Jesus was on his way, the crowds almost crushed him. Right? That's a pretty significant, significant crowd. Um, in verse 43, there was a woman who had suffered from bleeding for 12 years. Now, we don't have really any other information about her, um, but we do know some things. Uh, just based on what we know about the culture at that point, um, that it was obviously, even from the information that we have, a significant infirmity that this woman was was experiencing, right? Uh, a significant infirmity or an issue that she had. But it wasn't just merely the physical toll that suffering from bleeding would have would have taken on any person, on any woman. But it was also significant in terms of the emotional or relational toll that this would have taken on her. Uh, menstruating woman, women, which we, we assume that this is what, what was happening, right? A woman who, whose menstruation was going on for 12 years without stop were, were considered um, ritually unclean in the same way that a person with leprosy was. So in the midst of her, in her uh, period, she would be, have been considered unclean. And unable to, not allowed to touch any person uh, until she went under underwent ceremonial and ritual cleansing, and the and the priest right would essentially clear her again for worship, for eating meals with other people, for um, touching others without without making them unclean as well. If she touched someone else in the middle of in the midst of this, that person would be considered unclean and would have to go through that ritual cleansing. No one, you were not she wasn't allowed to eat with anyone because eating was a somewhat sacred time. And if you ate with someone who was unclean, guess what? You were unclean. That's why people were constantly worried about who Jesus was eating meals with. Right? You ate meals with the tax collectors and the sinners. You ate, meal, ate a meal with that prostitute. You ate a meal with that person who had leprosy. You touched that person who had leprosy. You touched that person who was sick. You touched that um, menstruating woman. Jesus, 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 you need to get clean. You need to get clean. You need to get clean. Right? There was this constant like overflow of, 
Jesus being ceremonially or ritually unclean and needing to take care of that. So no one could eat with this woman. No one could touch her. She could not worship in the temple. And so not only did she have this serious medical issue, but she lost all of her relational connections for over a decade. And what was, and what was really interesting in, is, not interesting, but like heavy, is in verse 43, it says, and no one could heal her. No one could heal her. Now, remember the context here of the crowd. The woman was existing in the midst of such an enormous crowd that Jesus thought that he was going to get crushed. How many people do you think that that woman had to touch to push through in order to get to Jesus? Dozens? Hundreds? Thousands? I, I, I don't know. She risked extraordinary punishment and additional public humiliation, but for reasons that are not made clear to us, this woman had faith to believe that even the hem of Jesus' garment possessed the power to heal her infirmity and by extension eliminate her public shame. She had faith to believe that I am risking it all in this moment. I am pushing through every person. I don't care if I got to touch every person in this crowd. I am getting to Jesus. And it's almost like as he's walking away, she just reaches out her hand and just like is able to like swipe the hem of his garment in some way because she had faith to believe that just a little bit of contact with Jesus was going to bring an end to her public humiliation and the beginning of her life lived in healing and peace. Now what happens, right? What happens with you and I when we come to Jesus to address the things that cause us shame? This woman's bleeding and her like societal position was what was causing her shame and humiliation. What happens to us when we come to Jesus to address the things that are causing us shame? The lies that the enemy is speaking into our lives, right? The question is, does Jesus heal reluctantly? Is it a decision that Jesus needs to weigh overnight? I'll pray about it. Come back the next day. Does Jesus treat us harshly? Does he pour judgment over us, demanding explanation for our actions? Or why have you been running from me for so long? I demand an explanation. You tell me why, why this hasn't happened sooner. It certainly doesn't appear that way from the way that he deals with the woman. In verse 45, he says these words, Who touched me? Uh, it's kind of a strange question on the surface. Kind of a strange question, right? Because what do we know about the context? There's a huge crowd around him pressing in on him, so much so that he thought he was going to be crushed. Peter, of course, the one who can never keep his mouth shut about the obvious, says, uh, Lord, uh, what do you mean? Like, LOL, everyone's touching you, brah. Um, But, oh, Jesus' response. We miss this, right? His response. Someone, verse 46, someone touched me. Someone touched me. Because I know that power has gone out from me. Listen. Do not miss this, okay? When we come to Jesus in bold and humble faith, Jesus takes away our shame and gives us power to live in peace. Listen, this is it. He takes 
what is ours and gives us what is his. That is why Jesus knew that power that he was touched. Because he could literally feel the power of God that brought healing to this woman go out from him. When we come to Jesus in bold and humble faith in order to get healing, he takes what we have been carrying and he gives us what is his. Look at the verse in verse 47. Then the woman, seeing that she could not remain hidden, came trembling and fell at his feet. Even in the moments of her healing, she was still bearing these marks of shame. Right? She could no longer remain hidden. She was like, well, I risked it all. all. I pushed to the crowd. I touched all these people. I can't. Maybe she had a cloak over her face so no one could see and know that it was her. Whatever the case may be, she got to this point. I can no longer remain hidden. Here I am. I want to stay hidden in my shame. I don't want to be noticed because I'm not worthy of being healed or being made right or being made new. But Jesus did what no one had probably done in 12 years for this woman. What everyone was powerless to do. No one could heal her. No one could take away her shame. No one could bring peace into her life. Jesus did what no one else had the power to do for her. What everyone else was powerless to do. What every other person and method failed at accomplishing. All the things that you have been trying or you have tried or you think will work to heal the innermost parts of your life, they always fall flat on their face in failure. And she falls flat on her face, assuming the posture of failure that she had probably become so accustomed to because of her identity. And in nine words, Jesus gives her what only he can give. Healing and peace. Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. Some of you all are here, like, still trying to find healing and peace. Where for the last 12 years of your life, no one has been able to help you. No one has been able to heal you. And you're just trying something new. And you're just trying something new. And just trying something new. And you're living in shame. And you're living in shame. And you're living in shame. And you're wondering, when's it going to end? And when's it going to end? And when's it going to end? Like I said earlier, You're not here this morning on accident. Maybe, maybe you thought you could come, could sit in the seat, right? If Jesus walked up the center aisle, you could kind of like look at him from a distance, be like, be like this, right? But you're not, I'm not pushing through the crowds to touch the hem of that garment, right? I'm not gonna wait, I'm not gonna make my way through. I'll watch from a distance, and who knows, maybe this woman had watched Jesus from a distance for a year. Like, there's no way that I can go, there's no way that I can approach him, I'm unclean. There's no way that that can happen. But you're broken, and you're sick, and you felt that way for a long, long time. Jesus wants to proclaim healing and peace over you. Jesus wants you to Jesus wants you to know to go in peace because you have received healing that has come from him. And the great thing is is that he's really he's willing to meet you right in the place where you are. One of the things that strikes me here is both the desperation of the woman to touch something of Jesus, but also the amount of Jesus that she needed to touch in order to receive the gift of healing and peace. 
What is the actual words? It's, uh, she touched the edge of his cloak. Sometimes we think we, we use the word the hem of his garment, right? Because that's kind of like the, it's a little quarter inch hem, right? The edge of his cloak. Not only the desperation that she had to touch something of Jesus, but the amount of Jesus that she needed to touch in order to receive healing. Because I, like, I, I know that we believe, oftentimes we believe that we have to get big time proximity to Jesus for him to want to give us the gift of healing and peace. We need more than just the hem. Like, we gotta, we gotta completely strip our lives down and, and it requires like, I gotta, I gotta fix some things about my life and I gotta get transformed because before I go and try and touch the hem of Jesus so that he can transform me. We stay far away from Jesus thinking that like, okay, I just gotta get my life together. I gotta will myself into this, right? Will myself into it. And then like we just continue in this cycle of separation thinking that we need big-time proximity to Jesus, where the reality here is, is this woman was like, I don't, I'll take whatever piece that I can get, whatever little bit of Jesus I can get, even the smallest amounts I know that, that, that when, I, when my faith is activated in the person of Jesus Christ, healing is going to come. Like, we've got to... Like, oh no, I need to be around him a long time, and I've got to really, really, really show him that I deserve to be healed, and then maybe he'll make the decision of whether or not to do it. That's the voice of shame if you hear that. Okay? Man, i got to follow Jesus for a long time, and then once I do that, maybe then he will decide to finally bring healing. But this story tells us different. This story tells us something else. Not only do we need only the measure of faith necessary to touch a single hem of his garment, but that Jesus, listen, Jesus has already decided that he wants to heal you and bring you peace before you even touch him. How do we know that? Because there is never a conscious decision of Jesus to turn around and heal the woman. She's healed before Jesus even knows that she's there. He had made the decision to walk in a spirit of healing to heal anyone that came to him by faith. Do you see that? Jesus has already made the decision that he wants to heal you. Jesus has already made the decision that healing and peace is available to you by faith. Jesus has already made the decision that your shame, that your shame would go to the cross with him so that you no longer would have to carry it. The decision was made long before you were even aware of his offer. When was the woman healed? It was before she fell at the feet of Jesus. It was before she expressed worship of him. God decided long ago that those who come to Jesus would receive healing and peace. And so the woman just needed to express a hem's worth of belief. Not a cloak. She didn't need the whole cloak of Jesus. She just needed to express a Hemsworth. I want you to hear this morning, okay, that if you have been living in a place of shame, if you have, if you have believed the voice of the enemy that tells you that you, because of what you've done and because of who you are, you need a really healthy buffer 
of separation from God because man is he angry with you. And if you just decide to get your life right and to turn it around, okay, then you can approach God and then life will turn around, right? Then he will receive you back into relationship with you. But listen, that is the voice of the enemy using a lie to keep you separated from relationship from the only one who can bring you healing and peace, from the only one that can bring you transformation. And what it often requires, look, is for you to say, I don't care who I have to touch in my shame on my way to push through to Jesus. I am done living like this. Jesus, bring me healing. Jesus, bring me peace. You cannot find healing and peace through your pastor. You cannot find healing and peace in your friendships. You cannot find healing and peace in your work or in your family or in your church. Jesus is the one who brings healing and peace. Jesus is the one who takes away your shame. Jesus is the one who replaces the identity of the enemy that he has put on you with the identity of the Lord. If you're living in a place where you're like, I'm, I can't do this anymore. I don't want to live in shame anymore. I don't want to live, in, I don't want to live this way anymore. I, I, I can't live like this anymore. And you're, and you're like, I'll push through the crowd to come and touch the hem of Jesus. Come and touch the hem of Jesus. You can come forward this morning. This is, not a, this, is, this is not a shame on you zone or place. This is a shame off of you. Like let us gather, let us gather around you as, as brothers and sisters, as men and women, as daughters and sons of the king who have ourselves walked through the crowds to say, Lord, I just need some, I need some healing. Let us pray with you. Borrow some of our faith. If you're coming forward and saying, I, uh, I don't know if I believe, I want to believe. I do believe, but Lord, I need you to help me in my unbelief. Right? Let us help you in your unbelief as well. Let us pray over you. Let us pray faith into you. Let us pray that in the moment of your vulnerability and surrender to the Lord, that He meets you in this place. And that by, that by pushing through the crowd in faith, you experience healing and peace. If you want that for your life, the time is now. If you, if you want to experience that, if that's, what, if that's what you want, if that's who you want to be, the time is now. I'm not even saying that it's like a generalized way. I mean the time is literally right now. If you want to experience the healing and peace of the Lord that comes through laying down shame and receiving His identity, come, let us pray over you. Let us pray, let us pray, let us pray with you. You want to pray if you want to if if you want to pray with these people as they're up here. Come come forward. Pray, let's pray with the let's pray with those who have said. Let's pray with those who have said. I'm going to push through the crowd this morning. 
I want to push through the crowd to experience healing, to experience peace. The altar remains open. Come forward. Receiving the healing and peace of Jesus. Sons and daughters, your faith heals you. Go in peace. You are loved. Have a great, great week.